This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by AA Batteries. Wish your electronics would stop working every few days and the only way to revive them was to buy more of a product containing toxic elements? Try AA Batteries today. Welcome to episode 28 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about airplanes, the place where this happened. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Okay, why is the doctor the one asking if Ted can fly the plane? I understand Elaine doesn't want to talk to him after their breakup, but couldn't the other flight attendant ask? or literally anyone else, so the doctor can actually try to help the five dozen sick people writhing around in the back of the plane? Don't get me wrong, that's one of the best scenes in the history of cinema, but the people on that plane really did a bad job delegating. In addition to being the setting of a classic comedy movie and a classic disappointing and underwhelming sequel, airplanes are the home to a lot of problems. And this year, life for airplanes got a lot worse. The aviation industry was among the hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic. The airlines are reeling. Tens of thousands are already laid off. Hundreds of thousands more in and around that industry could go soon. It is a crisis. The $25 billion airline bailout turns into a pumpkin on October 1st. With no more stimulus in sight, executives are pleading for a lifeline, and tens of thousands of jobs hang in the balance. It's true. The airline industry was hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, since you can't even stay six millimeters apart on a plane, let alone six feet. And according to CNBC, bailouts turned into a pumpkin. At this rate, airlines are going to be looking at their bailouts saying, It's a great pumpkin! He's rising up out of the pumpkin patch! To every major airline, if you don't hire Linus as your next CEO, you're really dropping the ball. But while the sharp decrease in travelers in 2020 certainly wasn't the fault of airlines, COVID-19 really accelerated a litany of problems facing the airline industry, sort of like it did for secondary education, or Johnny Galecki and Elena Meyer's relationship. Airplanes emit carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, create air and noise pollution, and operate with a wildly unsustainable business model that has led to countless bankruptcies. So today, we'll give an overview of some of the many issues facing airplanes and consider what a cleaner, healthier, and more economically viable future of air travel could look like. And let's start with CO2 emissions. If you've listened to the podcast before, you've probably heard me say that carbon dioxide is the leading greenhouse gas contributing to climate change. It absorbs solar radiation, which then warms the planet. Since jet fuel is a petroleum product, burning it to power an airplane releases carbon dioxide. So much so that in 2018, airplanes contributed 2.5% of total global CO2 emissions. 2.5%. That might not sound like a lot, but remember, that's out of all CO2 emissions. If airplanes were a country, they'd be the sixth largest CO2 emitter in the world, ahead of Germany. And with the exception of 2020 because of the pandemic, that number is increasing. Air transport is a special scrutiny. It's currently, its emissions have grown by 75% 
since 1990. That's double the rest of the economy. Despite oil crisis, wars and global recession, the demand for air transport keeps growing and it grows inexorably on an exponential rate. It's true. Air travel is growing exponentially, and international air transport predicted that passenger numbers would double to 8.2 billion in 2037. That's more than the number of Spotify wrapped stories I saw on Instagram. So not only is that 2.5% concerning, but it's growing. And unfortunately, airplanes' climate impacts aren't just from carbon dioxide. Airplanes create several other emissions, such as water vapor, nitrous oxide, and soot, which have a warming effect. And since gases formed at high altitudes persist in the atmosphere for longer, airplane emissions warm the climate more than emissions on the ground. All of that together explains why, according to a paper in Atmospheric Environments, despite contributing 2.5% of carbon dioxide emissions, aviation actually accounts for 3.5% of global warming. I know that still sounds small, but remember, that's out of everything. 3.5% could be the difference between a B plus and an A, unless you're at Harvard, in which case the only grades they ever give are A and A minus, because the students need time to practice working the phrase, did you know I went to Harvard, into every single conversation they ever have. And airplane emissions don't even stop with greenhouse gases. The smallest particles in the air are also the most dangerous. They're known as ultra-fine particles, smaller than 0.1 microns in diameter. Ultra-fine particles, or UFPs, are tiny but really destructive, like a schoolyard bully or an ingrown toenail. For comparison, human hair has a diameter of about 80 microns, or 800 times the size of an ultra-fine particle. And because they're so small, we actually breathe in UFPs, and from there, they enter the bloodstream and travel to every organ in the body, which is terrible because UFPs are associated with asthma, allergies, respiratory disease, immune system disease, heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. Unlike most other pollutants, UFP emissions don't have to be reported by airports, so their association with airplanes was a bit unknown for a while. But this year, with air travel down dramatically, scientists could compare the UFP concentrations near airports last year to this year and see exactly what kind of impact airplanes are having. The results are staggering. Between March and May last year, the air quality readings were 44 micrograms per cubic meter. In the same time this year, March to May, during the lockdown, air pollution has dropped at this monitor down to 23.9 milligrams per cubic meter. That's a 46% reduction in air pollution just at this one monitoring station. We also looked at the air quality monitoring station, which is located on the Northern Perimeter Road right inside their airport boundary beside the runway and there is a 50% reduction on the same time last year. These measurements were near Heathrow Airport in London and it showed that with airplanes flying the concentrations of ultrafine particles double. That's huge and it's especially important because UFPs don't just magically dissipate, they appear at higher concentrations near their source, in this case being airports. In the United States, 
Around 40 million people live near 89 major airports, and those are disproportionately low-income and minority communities. And according to a study in Transport Policy, people living near the airports with the most operations face damages approaching $400 per year. Since people with lower incomes are much less likely than wealthier people to fly, and often never fly, that means they're facing the brunt of the health impacts of a problem that they had nothing to do with. And if you can believe it, these communities near airports actually face another health burden that in most cases is even costlier than air pollution. All these aircraft noises can affect us in many ways. Over the past 10 years, studies from the UK shows that long-term exposure to high level of aircraft noise may have higher risk of poor cardiovascular health. Sleep disturbance is also one of the most harmful non-auditory effects. Besides that, aircraft noise exposure is also linked to poorer psychological health. Studies found that a 10 decibel increase in daytime aircraft noise was associated with 28% increase in anxiety medication use. Airplanes are ridiculously noisy. They're even noisier than Hans Zimmer's score in Interstellar. Seriously, you're a good composer, Hans, but when the score is that loud, I can't hear what the characters are saying. Does Murph want nothing to do with Cooper, or does she want him to stay? Was it really worth Cooper saying goodbye to his son if he's only going to give him a half-second man-hug and then only ever think or talk about his daughter for the rest of the movie? Does the Cooper in the black hole realize that if Murph actually succeeded in getting him to stay, he never would have left and thus never would have been in that black hole pushing the dust into her room? Or that while we obviously don't know what's actually inside a black hole, it's a little too convenient that there just happened to be a bunch of backs of his daughter's bookshelf breaking the space-time continuum, and the bookshelf just happens to be dusty enough that he can communicate with her? What if she took a book off the bookshelf? Would he just pop his head through like, oh, hey, Murph, I'm in a black hole and totally didn't get disintegrated by its gravitational force, but if you could just grab my spacesuit and yank me through your bookshelf, that'd be great. I'd love to answer these questions, but instead, I just had to listen to Hans Zimmer blare organs at me for three hours until I gave up trying. Airplanes create noise in two ways. Engine noise and airframe noise, where air passing over the plane as it's flying creates friction. Environmentally, this noise pollution can impact nearby wildlife's ability to communicate, migrate, locate predators or prey, and reproduce, since it's really hard to stay aroused when all you can hear is a super loud engine. And for humans, there's a lot of really scary health impacts too. Studies have shown aircraft noise impacting sleep, which can lead to worse mental health and productivity, impeding the development of memory and learning ability in children, and creating stress, which can lead to high blood pressure and cardiovascular conditions such as heart attacks, strokes, and cardiac arrhythmias. The annual costs of these health effects for nearby residents can get up to $400 per person as well. And since noise is even more uniform across airports, the costs per person are consistently high. And of course, beyond the health and economic impacts for people near airports, which again are disproportionately low-income and minority communities, noise pollution is just really annoying. I can barely handle the noise from the airplanes the few times I choose to go to an airport, so I can't even imagine having to live with it 24-7. Economically, all of this creates problems, from increased healthcare costs to the huge costs associated with cleaning up after climate change. And beyond that, the airline industry is actually an economic mess. 
The world has seen some extremely high-profile airline collapses, and the frequency of these seems to only be picking up. The trend truly began in 2017 when Monarch, a well-respected British leisure airline with 50 years of history, went belly up. The very same month, Air Berlin, a massive airline with over 8,000 employees and 100 planes, also ceased operations. 2018 then saw the end of Primera Air and Cobalt Air, a small Chypriot carrier. 2019, though, was the year of slaughter. Wow Air, a huge player in the low-cost transatlantic market, stopped flying. Ergue Azur, France's second-largest airline, stopped flying. XL Airways France, a long-existing transatlantic airline, stopped flying. Adria Airways, a mid-sized Slovenian airline, stopped flying. Then, after 50 years of history, Thomas Cook Airlines suddenly too stopped flying and would enter the record books as the largest UK airline collapse ever. It's true. The airline industry is messier than a teenager's bedroom. That clip focused on recent European airline bankruptcies, and airlines in the United States have had a similar history. United Airlines filed for bankruptcy in 2002, Delta filed for bankruptcy in 2005, American Airlines filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Those ones, of course, made it out of bankruptcy, but many didn't. All of this leads to an important point. The airline business model is extremely unstable, leading most airlines to have razor-thin profit margins at best and losses at worst. So why is that? Well, several reasons, and I won't cover them all today, but let's start with fuel costs. Jet fuel is made by processing crude oil at a refinery, and as we've discussed in episodes like Economic Recovery from Coronavirus, the price of crude oil swings all over the place. The Brent crude price in dollars has been all the way up to heady heights, over $140 per barrel, from more like 60 or so, and now, as I make this video, it's down, right down, nearer to the sort of 45 mark, and drifting south. So certainly is volatile over a relatively short time scale. And the wobbliness of this line just tells you that this is an asset that is pretty sensitive to events. Either that or the person drawing the graph forgot to trace the line with a ruler. Oil prices are essentially volatile because their supply and demand are both what economists call inelastic, which means the amount of oil produced and the amount of oil consumed doesn't change much when the price changes. On the supply side, it takes a long time to find new sources of oil or build new equipment, so oil producers couldn't, for example, see oil prices go up and decide to start producing more of it, as might be the case with other products. On the demand side, consumers also can't, for example, see oil prices go up and decide to buy less of it because any machinery they have needs oil to run, and switching to an alternative energy source would require that they buy completely new machinery. All of that means that when there's a geopolitical event, natural disaster, economic recession, or a condescending documentary with an overly dramatic celebrity narration that causes a sudden change in the supply or demand of oil, the price goes haywire. For airlines, that's a big challenge. The two largest costs for airlines are labor and fuel, although I assume that's leaving out the costs of individually wrapped biscottis and shockingly dried chicken in a mystery sauce, where when you ask the flight attendant what the sauce is, they just say, taste it. Through the 2010s, fuel comprised 19 to 32 percent 
of worldwide airline expenditures per year. And while the size of that percentage is big, the range is just as important because it shows airlines have to pay way more for fuel some years and way less for fuel other years. When it's cheap, they can make more money. When it's expensive, they can't. And since they can't reliably predict these price swings in advance, there's no real way for them to prepare. So if airlines have unstable costs, what about revenue? Well, that's not particularly stable either. Think back to travel in the time before coronavirus. How full were the planes you were on? How often was that seat next to you free? The answer is almost certainly sometimes, but not that often. On average, 85% of airplane seats in the US were filled in 2019. Now, simultaneously, when was the last time that you've gone to buy a ticket for a flight, but there were none available? This too certainly happens, but it's quite rare. It might cost quite a lot, but if you want to buy a ticket to a flight, it'll almost always be available, no matter how close to departure it is. And when you think about it, that's really impressive. That's almost as impressive as the fact that almost all the chips in a Pringles can manage to stay intact from the factory to the truck to the store all the way to our homes. Seriously, you'd think super fragile chips jostling around in a rock-hard can would crumble at the slightest impact, but Pringles somehow figured out a way to do it. Obviously, a few always end up cracking, but that goes to show just how impressive it is that it's entirely possible for chips to crack in the can, and most never do. Way to go, Pringles! Keep making the tastiest chips on the planet in the most innovative of containers while Lay's and Ruffles try to sell us their bags of air. So how do airlines fill all their seats and always have seats available? Well, while oil demand is inelastic, airplane ticket demand is the opposite. It's elastic. People regularly choose to fly or not fly based on the price of the ticket. So to anyone who says you can't put a price on family, if you need an airplane to visit, Yes, you can, and apparently it's not even that much. Armed with that fact, airlines use computer algorithms to change the prices of their flights every hour of every day based on factors like previous travel trends and the number of empty seats left. But while airplane ticket demand is elastic, supply is inelastic. Airlines can't magically create more seats. They can sell fewer tickets or take planes out of circulation, but a half-empty flight costs the same to fly as a full flight, and even not flying a plane only saves fuel and labor costs. That means in times when people don't want to travel, airplanes don't have much choice besides making ticket prices ridiculously cheap, as they did for a period back in April, or after events like 9-11, or in any economic downturn. Obviously, they're going to lose money on a $30 ticket, but they'd lose 30 less dollars than if they flew the plane with an empty seat. And like with fluctuating oil prices, fluctuating ticket prices creates a problem for airlines. In some years they make money, and in some years they look at their profits and say, It's the Great Pumpkin! He's rising up out of the pumpkin patch! And fuel costs and ticket demand are two of many economic issues facing airlines. First-class and business-class seats where airlines used to make extra money have become a lot less popular. Short routes cost a lot more to fly than routes between hubs. And since ticket price is truly the only factor most travelers go by when booking flights, there have been many cases of anti-free market practices like predatory pricing where airlines will drive their prices down as far as possible to put their competitors out of business. 
For all of these reasons and more, airlines are going bankrupt left and right. Even in the 2010s, there was a strong economy and somewhat stable oil prices which allowed a more profitable decade than usual for airlines, and there were still countless bankruptcies. And when an airline does go bankrupt, the effects are felt by the employees as much, if not more, than those at the top of the company. Sometimes there's layoffs or pay cuts, other times it's less obvious ways, such as the government taking over employee pension plans and then cutting those pensions. These countless bankruptcies screw employees almost as bad as Chevy's employee discount for everyone's sale. Chevy, if everyone gets the employee discount, it's not the employee discount anymore. That's your new price, and all you're doing is advertising that you're refusing to give a discount to your employees. So with catastrophic environmental impacts, harmful health effects, and a business model leading to losses and bankruptcies, does that mean we need to ban airplanes and go back to horses and hot air balloons? Of course not. Airplanes obviously have a long list of pros, too. They allow us to see the world, visit faraway family and friends, and so much more. And they're important facets of businesses, supply chains, international politics, and overly elaborate marriage proposals. I know very well that this is one of the most tempting issues to ignore because the issues are so overwhelming and seem impossible to fix and make us feel guilty for traveling, but I promise you don't need to feel guilty and there is actually a lot that can be improved. Some parts are more complicated and require technology we haven't finished developing, but other things are actually really easy to do. First off, what can individuals do? Well. One option is to factor the environmental impact of each mode of transportation into your decision-making. In general, a bus is better than a train, which is better than a plane which trumps the average car and SUV. But that order can vary depending on distance traveled and the amount of passengers within that car. Particularly for shorter distances, trains, and especially buses, tend to be an environmentally friendlier alternative. They're also usually cheaper, and mean you don't have to wait eight hours in a security line trying as hard as you can not to say anything about bombs. Seriously, I never think about bombs ever, and then suddenly I'm in that line and all I can think is, huh, how do bombs work? You think that TSA officer would tell me if I asked really politely? But as the distance gets longer, planes can actually become a better and better option. It truly depends on what car you own, what fuel the train runs on, what airports the plane is traveling to and from, and more. If you are someone interested in comparing the climate impacts of various modes of transportation, there are some sites like TerraPass and TripZero that can give you more specifics regarding your car and your planned trip. There's also a lot you can do when you do fly. You can avoid first class and business class. You can try to book direct flights, which eliminates the impact of an extra takeoff and extra landing. You can plan your vacations in ways that minimize the amount of flying you do, such as taking one two-week vacation per year instead of two one-week vacations. You can be sure not to miss your flight. In general, practices like these not only help the environment, but save you money. And if you do want to spend your money on this, there are actually some airlines and outside organizations that allow you to buy a carbon offset where you essentially fund a tree planting or renewable energy or other climate project such that that project can mitigate or absorb the same amount of carbon that you emitted by flying. If that's something you're interested in, be sure first to listen to our carbon neutrality episode, since there are a lot of issues with carbon offsetting to be aware of. 
Given that that would be a more expensive individual action to take, it would be important to get it right. What about on a larger scale? Well, one of the biggest solutions which improves nearly all the issues we've discussed today in one shot is efficiency. Earlier this year, Boeing and NASA launched the Eco Demonstrator. The plane's tail is 17% smaller and contains tiny forced air jets, which help stabilize the plane during takeoff and landing, increasing rudder efficiency up to 20%. At speeds airlines fly, a chip in the paint or a misplaced rivet can increase drag, costing fuel and, of course, polluting more. And so will bug splatters. So they've developed new insect-repellent coatings to reduce the drag costs from insect strikes. Really? I thought insect strikes were when bees stop making honey because the queen refuses to pay them any money for their labor. Come on, queen. I know you're used to having a monarchy for all these years, but the times are changing. Your bees have demands now, and if you're not careful, they might keep picketing outside the hive and never work again. So you've really got to get your ducks in a row and come to the negotiating table. Energy efficiency is a really useful strategy. Burning less fuel means less greenhouse gases warming the planet, less particulate matter causing adverse health effects, and for the airlines, less money spent on fuel. Not only is that a saved cost, but it's saving on the specific cost that they're struggling with. If they need to buy less fuel, the swings in oil prices won't hit quite so hard. As we've discussed before, energy efficiency takes some upfront investment, which is often why it doesn't happen. Governments can help with that through efficiency requirements or tax breaks, loans, or subsidies to nudge companies in that direction. There's also some new innovations regarding the type of fuel used to power an airplane. Animal fat, mustard seeds, garbage, and used cooking oil are just some of the products being used to make jet fuel. Airlines have been experimenting with biofuels for years. Environmental impact becoming a top issue means more widespread use is likely to take place in the coming years. Mustard seed? I always figured if an airplane were powered by a spice, it would undoubtedly be chili powder. I mean, if you accidentally do tablespoons instead of teaspoons with that stuff, you'll be blasting off your toilet with diarrhea for a week. Since most biofuels burn cleaner than fossil fuels, they have the ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and toxic pollutants by staggering amounts, often well over 50%. And biofuels are especially exciting because we already know how to make them, and more than 170,000 flights to date have used them. Many airports also make sustainable aviation fuels available to all airlines on a regular basis, and Norway requires airlines to use a half percent mixture of biofuel on all flights. Of course, that's certainly not to say biofuels are perfect. Biofuels still emit carbon dioxide. Some biofuel sources, such as corn and palm oil, can require large amounts of land, water, and even deforestation. There have been cases where biofuels and storage degraded over time, or affected rubber parts used in engines. And notably, sustainable aviation fuels are currently three to four times more expensive than standard petroleum-based jet fuel. But despite their imperfections, a lot of people see these sustainable fuels as an improvement, and governments could use market mechanisms or standards like Norway's to incentivize them. If they were to do that, though, global cooperation would be important since the worst scenario would be if airlines tried to save money by buying extra biofuel from a country that sells it cheap and carrying it around on the plane, thus making the plane way more and take extra energy to fly. There's also been a lot of buzz in recent years around the prospect of electric planes. Electric aircraft have made inroads in the recent years too, whether it's hybrid electric aircraft, 
which means an aircraft propelled by both fuel and an electric battery, or a fully electric aircraft. Prototypes such as the Aviation Alice are expected to enter commercial service in the next few decades. As we discussed last week on electrification, there are a lot of processes that would need to be turned electric to have a fully decarbonized world. Airplanes are one of the hardest, given that batteries weigh enough to have their own TLC reality show. But there are some smaller short-distance electric planes starting to emerge, and since this technology could potentially one day make air travel carbon-free, many are optimistic about this research. What about policy? Well, there's a lot of policy ideas out there, and like Olivia Jade's recent public reflection about her college admissions scandal, each policy has pros and cons. Some countries have started using conditional bailouts, as we discussed in Economic Recovery from Coronavirus, where airlines must agree to certain climate conditions to receive COVID-19 bailout money. Other countries like France started introducing an eco-tax on flights from French airports to raise money for greener transportation. While proponents argue a tax on airfare can raise useful revenue and push some people to choose not to fly if it raises the price enough, critics say the tax wouldn't make a big difference since, as we discussed earlier, airlines change their prices all the time and might just end up dropping their price to fill all their seats anyway. There's also plenty of ideas for more targeted policies. For ultrafine particles, some point out that unlike larger particulate matter like PM10 and PM2.5, UFPs are not regulated at all and could be reported or regulated similarly to their larger counterparts. For noise pollution, some suggest traffic curfews or adjusted takeoff and landing procedures at airports, though this also has a lot of critics since it could disrupt scheduling. For protecting free and fair competition between airlines, some advocate adding a procedure to make it more complicated for airlines to change their ticket prices, for example, requiring they submit their ticket prices to a government agency in advance, which is kind of hilarious. They're basically discussing a policy to use bureaucratic incompetence to make sure airlines don't push their prices too low and price out competitors for fear of not being able to raise their prices back up to normal levels as quickly as they would like. Seriously, who thought inadequate government would be a pro? But ultimately, each country can only really control domestic travel within their own country. Fixing international travel requires international cooperation. And the UN's International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, has put together an interesting plan. Following the October 2016 historic agreement by the ICAO Assembly on the Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation, Corsia. Governments and the aviation industry are getting ready to implement the first ever sector-wide carbon offsetting program. Corsia will help achieve international aviation's aspirational goal of carbon neutral growth from the year 2020. Corsia brought together 81 countries representing nearly 77% of international aviation. Any airline flying between Corsia countries will have to measure their carbon emissions and buy carbon offsets for any emissions that exceed 2020 levels. In other words, Corsia aims to make the total net carbon emissions from aviation constant from 2020 forward. Of course, Corsia has a lot of criticisms, from the fact that carbon offsets are notoriously unreliable, to the exclusion of private jets, to the fact that it would mean airlines aren't actually reducing emissions, just stagnating, to the struggles airlines are currently facing with COVID-19. 
Of course, all of these are important concerns, and ICAO has already made some adjustments with regard to the pandemic, most importantly changing the benchmark year from 2020 to 2019 since air travel tanked this year. But given how challenging it is to bring large coalitions of companies and countries together on an issue with no global enforcement mechanism, Corsia is certainly an impressive feat and suggests a global willingness to confront this issue. Airplanes are consistently held up as one of the hardest environmental issues to solve. And yes, it's true that it will be really hard to make 100% perfect, but it is not hard to make it better. Not only are there really intriguing innovations and policies on the table, but if there's one thing we learned in 2020, it's that we can do a lot through Zoom and telecommuting without ever leaving the home. Obviously, there's no replacement for traveling, but finding those alternatives saves money, protects the environment, and means you don't have to vomit in a bag every time a gust of wind or raindrop hits the plane. And if the whole aviation sector improves, we would mitigate climate change, scale back air and noise pollution, and slow the decades-long trend of airline bankruptcies. And if you're thinking, that's a tall task, surely you can't be serious, well... I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Do you ever use an electronic device and feel a sudden urge to throw a small cylinder full of toxic elements into the trash? If so, AA batteries are for you. Instead of having to plug your electronic into a wall, you can grab a couple cylinders filled with cadmium, lead, and mercury, which can contaminate soil and cause adverse health effects, and stick them right in, and then a few days later, throw them out and buy new ones. Cool! AA batteries. They're not included. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Kevin Lane, an assistant professor of environmental health at Boston University. Dr. Lane, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. First, I wanted to ask you about the BU Climate Action Plan. In what ways did you contribute and how does environmental health play into the plan? Sure. So the roles that I was asked to do as an assistant professor was to provide some of the contextual background from the science, especially on the heat waves as well as air pollution work. I was lucky enough to be able to do that work with Dr. Pat Kinney in my department, who has uh, sort of a, is a world-leading researcher in this area, and to provide sort of the scientific rationale as to you know explain what urban heat islands are, what's the relationship with thing, things like mortality and how heat action plans and climate action plans, if tied together, can have co-benefits in terms of not just improving mortality and health, but also simultaneously reducing things like greenhouse gases. So while I, I didn't contribute essential direct text, I had the opportunity to contribute sort of from the background in supporting the rationale that um, the uh, climate action plan board and team were presenting to the university and board of trustees. I also wanted to ask you about your work at Logan Airport in Boston. You've set up monitoring equipment to measure ultrafine particles coming from airplanes and have studied how these particles have impacted the health of nearby communities. So could you tell us a little bit about this work and some of the findings? Yeah, uh, ultrafine particles is a passion of mine. It's an area of research I've actually been doing back to when I was a doctoral student at the BU School of Public Health as well, where I was looking at traffic-based exposures in the greater Boston area along I-93 and I-90 in communities in downtown Boston, Somerville, and uh, Chelsea, Dorchester neighborhoods, and so on. Um, in ultrafine particles, are, are it's really an important area of research because right now those are unregulated air pollutants. So we have regulations through what's known as the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for things like particulate matter size 
but we don't have any standards for ultrafine particles. And as of right now, there's not really enough uh, health-based evidence as well as source apportionment-based studies out there to start to help really build out these policies. So our study is really trying to help coordinate in on trying to examine what those contributions would be from aviation. And there's already been some work done by uh, Nalakshi Huda, a colleague and collaborator at Tufts University and John Durant at Tufts University as well, examining these. What we're doing is we're doing a much broader year-round uh, sampling campaign of both stationary and mobile monitoring to collect a variety of different air pollutants in communities around Logan Airport to see what that community-based exposure is. The reason why we, we really care and we're concerned about ultrafine particles is because of their localized dispersion and uh, that they could potentially be what's known as more cytotoxic than their larger particles. So because we're talking about particles around the nanometer size, some of the human exposure studies and animal studies have shown that these particles can penetrate, cause inflammation, both in the lungs, but penetrate past and be circulated throughout the entire cardiovascular system and deposited in different organs, including past the blood-brain barrier in the brain. And therefore, they're potentially more insidious because they could elicit uh, localized reactions in the body that are adverse. So that's why we have to really study them on a localized basis around different highways, different airports, or different industrial sources. And I found it really interesting to read that pollutants like PM 2.5 were so much more regulated than these ultrafine particulates. And it makes sense that the degree to which there's evidence would impact the degree to which they're regulated. So I'm wondering how far along are we to have a sense of how these might be regulated and to what degree they might be regulated and what do you hope to see in the future? In terms of the amount of health information that's needed, actually ultrafine particles under the last two reviews by the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Board, which advises the EPA director, they've talked about ultrafine particles, but the one clear thing they've said is that we lack human health studies or epidemiological evidence to support the promulgation or formation of a standard at this time, which tells us we need more population health studies out there. In terms of creating a policy, typically there's another issue that comes into play as well. There are some countries that have instituted a policy, such as Switzerland. However, if you look at total suspended particles and then PM10 and then PM2.5, the standards are based upon a mass-based value, which means that you're talking about, you know, like the mass of particles in relation to a proportion of air that's being breathed in. The way that we typically measure ultrafine particles, because they're on the nanometer scale, is using what's known as a particle number count. So we have to explain not only the health relationship, we also have to explain the policy members in EPA that you know, right now, the best measurements that we have to identify ultrafine particles are an entirely different way of measuring it. It's the count per the meter of air that's being breathed. So it, it's a different measure entirely as well. But a lot of this work, since these things are local, we don't always need to wait for a national standard. There's things and actions we can take now to help protect our populations. And the thing is, is that a lot of the populations in Boston that live near these sources, we see you know, there's more public housing in those areas or those homes are typically lower income or high minority uh, population. So what we need to do is we can already work with some of these groups. BU and Tufts are collaborating with 
local developers or with HUD, Housing and Urban Development, with the idea of putting in HEPA air filtration. So there are mechanisms that can be put in place that were also talked about in the Climate Action Plan, which is we need to deal with these by putting in air filtration systems to protect our populations that we care about. That leads beautifully into my next question. Airports create a lot of issues for nearby communities. And as you were saying, these communities are disproportionately low-income and minority communities. This is all over the country. So with your research at Logan Airport, you already mentioned some of the measures that you've been working on in these communities. What implications do you see this work having for the rest of the country with communities near airports? And what successes do you see here that you think could be transferred to other areas? In the Boston area, a lot of the work has been done in closer proximity to the neighborhoods that are more adjacent, and especially the mobile monitoring route work. Right now, there's, there hasn't really been a larger study to look at what's happening in multiple different communities simultaneously over long periods of time. And that's one of the key things we're trying to do is go beyond just examining what just the levels are in the community, but trying to tie those back to you know, how much of this is coming from you know, ground-based operations versus in-flight planes compared to the local traffic that might be occurring as well. And that's a key area of work that's missing right now from the larger body of literature. And the reason why we're still at that initial stage is because a lot of this work has really uh, focused on just going out and taking periodic measurements and then trying to just look at descriptive pattern underneath different types of wind conditions. And that's one way to go about it. But the, one of the issues is the flights overhead are intermittent in their sources. So you have a plane that will come over and there will be a gradual period of time before the next plane comes. So the methods by which people have previously analyzed it might miss the contributions from those flights overhead if they're examining, for instance, what the total day or hourly base values are. We're trying to look at more immediate time, which is a more complex approach. It's, it's exciting research because we're in the community taking measures and collecting data but we're also really at the cutting edge of where we're trying to go with some of the ultrafine particle analyses as well. In terms of looking for solutions to this issue, how are ultrafine particles preventable in the use of airplanes or in the operations of airports or any vehicles for that matter? Or is it more of an issue of kind of adapting through HEPA filters and that kind of thing? The strategy is to do all at once and to move on these these pieces in tandem. So transitioning into more sustainable fuels or things like low sulfur fuel as well to help mitigate more immediate sort of some of these problems are actual projects that are undertaken by FAA through the ascent. So while we do a lot of the measuring and modeling, one of the key parts of, of the data that we're trying to also inform since we have access to the flight information is trying to identify if age of planes might impact this. So, you know, this was something that actually happened with the trucking industry as the engines became cleaner and then it required and necessitated in order to maintain meeting those standards that they rolled out and changed the fleets over. So creating similar mechanisms might be a potential solution as well having cleaner fuel, cleaner engines um, is one immediate. And then in terms of immediate also protecting of the populations 
is trying to do a couple different things from the homes. It might be, you know, if we're talking about the traffic and other sources is trying to look at indoor HEPA air filtration systems, clean building designs to help reduce the penetration of air pollution into the homes. Another idea that's that's being done as well is you know looking at the flight paths that are occurring at airports and trying to identify you know what can be optimized there to reduce the amount of uh, flights over highly populated areas. Maybe it's increasing the flight ascending and descending out of the airport as well. We've come across multiple project groups within the ascent that are trying to examine and tackle these problems. So I don't think it's one size fits all. I think it's actually trying to look at all these solutions in tandem. In terms of what a zero emissions would be, I think those are definitely goals that should be researched and explored. How can we transition? But I don't think we should at least entirely just discount the idea of also using lower uh, particulate-based fuels as well while we're trying to search for those solutions. Dr. Lane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ethan. This wraps up episode 28 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Megan Crimmins, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rawlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab and to BU Sustainability and Innovate at BU. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.